Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of Schmerz Day, November 1st, 2021. On the show today, news, and I test the new Genie app at Disney's Hollywood Studios. In our main segment, Jim tells us how Disney's readjusting its space-themed attractions and shows now that real-life space tourism has started. Let's get started by bringing in the man who says that if you want your work emails to be taken seriously, start them off with, to whom it will concern. It's Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? I Actually, Len, I'm, I'm rather concerned about my own will. I'm 62, and it's like, who's going to end up with my McDonald toy collection? I, 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 <laughs> speaking of which, did you see that they have announced, as of 2023, McDonald's will not be doing plastic toys anymore? Stainless steel? Imagine the injuries in the back seat with that one, lobbing the steel Mickey Mouse toy at your brother. So what are they going to do? Paper. Paper? Oh, that makes sense. Okay. What they showed was this little insert tab A into slot B. Oh, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's uh, recyclable. It's lower weight. Uh, you can pack it down lower so it takes less uh, shipping. Totally makes sense. Yeah, but it's going to be, oh, cool. Look at this toy. Mommy, daddy put this together. <laughs> And you know they're going to be small, too, right? Oh, the amount of swearing that's going to be going on at McDonald's around the world is going to go up exponentially <laughs> come 2023 as people struggle to put together little teeny tiny paper minions. I can't, I can't wait to see that. That'll be a, that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, it's open. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.Bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers English Pitt, Lauren Richards, and Jimmy Rogers. And longtime subscribers, EJP0619, Patrick Barbie, and Dave Desrock777. Jim, these are the folks who carved all of the fabulous woodwork that you see inside the lobby of Disney's Wilderness Lodge Resort. And the name Artist Point refers to how one of them got all stabby with the sculpting tools after a long night with too much paint thinner. True story. Uh, okay. <laughs> Len, they told me that was a ketchup spill. Oh, God. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that? No, no, no. Just some paint. Yeah, it's fine. it's fine. Oh, dear. All right, Jim, let's do the news. Folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. And Jim, that reminds me, we've got a live show coming up with Storybook Destinations on November 14th, right? That we do. And from what I understand, there's like a couple of seats, literally a couple of seats left. Mm -hmm. If you're in Central Florida, uh, there's a couple of tickets still available. Visit storybookdestinations.com for details. We'd love to see you there. Yeah, killer. All right, Jim, in terms of news, uh, Walt Disney World indoor meet and greets are back in the parks. Now, you and I were actually in the parks last weekend mm -hmm. and saw the very beginnings of this, didn't we? We did. We did. We were wandering around Epcot by Norway and we're outside of the Summerhus when suddenly both Anna and Elsa appeared coming out of separate doorways. They, they were yelling, shoo, shoo, <laughs> you get away. What? But it was in Norsk, so none of us understood it. We had to translate later on. So. Yeah, there we go. Um, but they're now they're back indoors and socially distanced. And you pointed out a great thing mm -hmm. that Disney's spent uh, the last couple of weeks getting ready for this by putting in decorative uh, landscaping and other um, uh, thematic elements mm -hmm. to make you separate from the characters, but not look like they're behind bars or on a cage or on a stage or anything like that. So for us, when we saw Anna and, uh, Anna and Elsa, mm -hmm. they, were, they came to the edge of the gate that was closed 
um, that allows the entrance into the summer house, right? Um, but the gate served as a natural barrier to keep guests from getting too close. Conversely, when we were over by Morocco uh, that night, I think we saw Jasmine from Aladdin on a stage behind a series of decorative planters and that sort of thing. So you could get close, but not too close. Too so, close, mm-hmm. right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, So, uh, and, and Disney do, is doing the same thing now with the indoor meet and greets. So uh, hats off to the Park Ops people who figured out how to do that mm-hmm. and keep it all thematically consistent uh, and uh, give us a way to bring back socially distant meet and greets. I think that's that's going to be a huge hit for a lot of people, and it's mm-hmm. one of the key reasons why a lot of people come to the parks to meet and interact with the characters. Absolutely, so absolutely. All right, Jim, uh, I just mentioned that you and I were in the parks this past weekend. We were recording a bunch of live shows, Bandcamp exclusives, mm-hmm. that are going to be coming up um, relatively soon. But I took one day last Saturday off, mm-hmm. and I went to the studios to test Disney's new Genie app. Would you like to hear how that went? I am on the edge of my seat. Please go ahead. All right. So uh, a disclaimer, everyone knows I'm biased about this. So in this first section, when I talk about Genie, I am only going to talk about facts. No opinions whatsoever. It's going to be a series of short declarative statements, all of which are objectively true, right? So no opinions in this section. This is how my day went. Um, So this was Saturday, October 23rd at Disney's Hollywood Studios. We had four people testing Genie and touring plans in the park that day. Uh, Chrissy was doing a straight touring plans, touring plan with early entry, no Genie, no Genie Plus, no individual lightning lane. Mm -hmm. Yvonne was also there and she was doing a touring plan with a buy all the things strategy. So a touring plan plus Genie Plus and individual lightning lane. Mm -hmm. Morgan was there testing Genie as a Star Wars fanatic. So she picked as her preferences in Genie all the Star Wars stuff in the park that she could. And I was there testing just Genie, no preferences, no nothing else. Mm-hmm. Right? All right. So I was admitted to the studios by 8.30 a.m., so early theme park entry. The park actually opened around 7.45, so keep that in mind if you're headed down soon. The parks might be open earlier than the half an hour that, that you get with early theme park entry. Mm-hmm. So I opened up the Genie app while I was on Hollywood Boulevard near the Central Hub. For my group, I selected just myself, so one middle-aged guy, no one else. Mm-hmm. Um, I selected no attractions uh, or no and no other preferences at all. I wanted to see what Genie would give me based on the data Disney already had for me. Mm-hmm. So here was my initial itiner- itinerary that Genie gave me. Keep in mind, this is at 8.30 in the morning. Mm-hmm. At 8.30 in the morning, it said I should ride Toy Story Mania at 9.30. Mm-hmm. I should buy a droid at 10.20. I should eat lunch at Ronto Roasters at 11.10. Then 12.10 p.m., ride Millennium Falcon. At 2 o'clock, Star Tours. 2.35, Rise of the Resistance. 4.30, Alien Swirling Saucers. 5.35, Muppet Vision. 6 o'clock, ABC Commissary. 6.40, Vacation Fun. 7.35 p.m., Tower of Terror. And 8.45, Wonderful World of Animation. Okay, so my initial plan didn't include Runaway Railway, Slinky Dog Dash, a rock and roller coaster, but did include buying a droid, Muppet Vision, mm-hmm. Aliens Rolling Saucers, and Vacation Fun, mm-hmm. plus upsell attempts for Genie Plus and Lane Attractions. Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, the plan assumed I was going to be in the park all day because Genie didn't ask me uh, when I was getting there or when I wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. So I declined. Uh, so I did Toy Story Mania. I declined buying a droid, and Genie uh, gave me these options at ten twenty. Um, Walt Disney Presents, Disney Junior Live on Stage. Lightning McQueen Racing Academy, and Alien Swirling Saucers. I picked 
All facts here, Jim. All facts. I get that. I, I, I get that. No, no opinion yet. Okay. <laughs> We're, we'll get we'll get to that point. Okay. okay. So I picked Walt Disney Presents uh, because I wanted to see that stay in the park, mm-hmm. uh, and because I didn't want to have to explain to the Orange County Orange County sheriffs what a lone middle aged guy was doing at D- Disney Junior. Right. Probably not a great idea. <laughs> One good thing that Genie does do is it reminds you in advance to place your mobile food order so it's ready when you're supposed to eat. So about half an hour before I was supposed to get to Ronto Roasters, I actually got a little pop-up that said, hey, place your mobile order now so it'll be ready when you get there. That, that's actually a great a great little feature. So I place my order, I get to Ronto, Ronto's Roasters, I get right in and pick up my food. Here's where I encounter some difficulty. Mm-hmm. There were so many other guests at Ronto's Roasters that there was no available seating either inside or outside. Mm-hmm anywhere in the area of Ronto Roasters. So I went over to Ducking Bay 7 and said, and asked, and I said basically this, like, look, I can eat this thing in five minutes. I got the veggie wrap and a Coke, mm-hmm. not a lot of food, right? I can eat this in five minutes. Can I sit there while I eat it? And I was told no, because they were expecting a large crowd shortly and they needed the seating for themselves. So I ended up eating lunch on top of a trash can. Ooh, I so- will say the veggie wrap was delicious. By the way, it's fall, so um, leaves are falling. <laughs> On, on your food as you eat on top of a trash can. Again, not an opinion, a fact that actually happened. Okay. Okay. Um, right after lunch, Rise went down, and Jeannie swapped me to Slinky at 3 p.m., and it never suggested Rise with the resistance again. Ooh. And the rest of the day went without incident, right? So it was pretty straightforward from, from that point. Mm-hmm. Remember, Morgan selected all of the Star Wars things mm-hmm. to see how Jeannie would customize her day. Jeannie gave Morgan the exact same itinerary I had, except her dinner was at Docking Bay 7, while mine was at ABC Commissary. So if you selected all the Star Wars stuff or you did nothing at all, that was the only difference. All right. So at the end of the day, we had four people in the park. Mm -hmm. Chrissy, who was doing just a touring plan in early entry, Mm -hmm. um, saw 13 attractions in seven and a half hours. She waited in line for 200 minutes, 24 of which was downtime at Rise. So excluding that downtime and assuming that downtime didn't have any effect at all mm-hmm. on the rest of her waits for the rest of the day. Let's make that assumption. It's mm-hmm. fine. She waited around 14 minutes per attraction. And if you look at her demographic, mm-hmm. right, again, an over 30 for the touring plans um, surveys, the average rating of the attractions that she experienced was just under 3.9, 3.88. Mm-hmm. Yvonne, who was doing a touring plan with pay your way, with like buy everything, mm-hmm. experienced the exact same 13 attractions, but in one less hour. She did have prep time mm-hmm. where she had to, you know, uh, schedule the genie stuff starting at 7 a.m. And mm-hmm. She waited in line for just 79 minutes or an average of six minutes per attraction. And the average rating of her attractions was, again, 3.88, just under 3.9, same as Chrissy. Mm-hmm. Yvonne paid around $40 for her genie plus and individual lightning lanes. Morgan, who, remember, was the genie Star Wars fanatic, saw eight attractions in 11 and a half hours. She waited in line the most, 226 minutes, around 28 minutes per attraction. The average rating of the attraction she saw was four. I spent the most time in the park. It was around 12 and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And the 10 attractions I saw had the lowest average rating for my demographic, 3.78. I waited in line 143 minutes, or so roughly 14 minutes per attraction. So for my demographic, again, mm-hmm. over 30s in the Hollywood studios, the five highest rated attractions in the park are these. Rise of the Resistance, Tower of Terror, Toy Story Mania, Rock and Roller Coaster, and Slinky Dog Dash. Mm-hmm. And Jeannie suggested three of those for mm-hmm. me. So I ended up on Tower, Toy Story Mania, and Slinky Dog Dash. Okay. The seven lowest rated attractions in the park for my demographic are Disney Junior, Lightning McQueen, Disney Movie Magic, 
or the the uh, yeah, the the show uh, fireworks at the end of the night, alien swirling saucers, vacation fun, Muppet Vision, and Beauty and the Beast live on stage. Jeannie suggested all of those to me. Mm-hmm. So three of the top five, but all of the of the lowest seven. Mm-hmm. That is the end of my factual statements. So now let's talk opinion here, right? Okay. I got there at eight thirty, Jim. Mm-hmm. In the three and a half hours before lunch, Jeannie had me on one ride. That's baffling. Mm. I don't understand that. And it knows I'm in the park, right? Because the GPS is on. It knows where I'm at, mm-hmm. right? And it knows my demographic. I didn't understand that at all. Like, why would it just say Toy Story Mini? Which, by the way, you know, I like, it, it's, a, it's a highly rated ride. Mm-hmm. I did not wait that long mm-hmm. on it. But one ride in the first three and a half hours, the park is open, including early entry. Like, what, what's happening there? Are we thinking that they wanted you doing retail? They wanted you, you know, quick so it, service? It, I mean, not for nothing, right? But, for, but the, the first three and a half hours I had in the park mm. was one ride, one upsell shopping experience, and one food thing. That's true. The droid. The droid thing. So it was like ride a ride, buy something, buy something. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm, little, uh, as the kids say, a little sus, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And interestingly, at the um, at the Magic Kingdom, I was there the day before. I asked Jeannie to build an itinerary with the eight highest rated attractions in the park. So mm-hmm. you know, the mountains, pirates, mm-hmm. mansion, stuff like that. Um, the itinerary it gave me for the entire day included exactly two of them, <laughs> and I don't understand why Jeannie doesn't use the things that you pick. Like, how do you explain that to the guest? It'd be like Jim. Mm-hmm. Hey Jim, what do you want for dinner? Chicken or steak? Mm-hmm. And you pick chicken or steak. And I was like, here's your tofu. There we go. What, what did we ask the question for? Yeah. My thinking here mm-hmm. is that, you know, just based on what, what happened to me, Jeannie's probably filling the distribute guests throughout the park function mm-hmm. that happened naturally with FastPass. Remember um, with FastPass, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things that we saw was wait times at the headliner attractions went down mm-hmm. and wait times at the secondary attractions went up, which when you think about it is fairly clear evidence that Disney was distributing people mm-hmm. evenly throughout the park. If it had fast pass, even if it was dinosaur or one of the shows, mm-hmm. right? Disney was, was pulling people away or uh, fast pass was pulling people away from the headliner attractions and moving them efficiently throughout the park, making sure that Disney was utilizing all of the available ride capacity that it had. But FastPass was free. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I actually had so much free time in my day mm-hmm. that Jim and I recorded a bunch of shows yeah. while we were in the studios yeah. in between steps. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. that's how much time we had. and That's how much time we had sitting around. Yeah. Okay. But previous days, when we were in the park, instead of comparing notes with folks who were also testing Genie and Lightning Lane, we observed when you'd request with, say, Genie to go to Jungle Cruise the very next suggestion would sometimes be in the immediate vicinity, like go over to Tiki Room or go get lunch at Tortuga Tavern and would ignore what you had previously put on your list about, you know, again, I I would love to do a mountain splash or, or thunder, that sort of thing. And the fact that it seems to be leaning not into what the guest prefers, but what makes operating in the parks easier. Yeah. Pushing people to less populated attractions. That was a, a little concerning. 
To your point about the Jungle Cruise thing, so we were testing in the Magic Kingdom, and I think it was Yvonne mm-hmm. who was using Genie. And the first thing that, G- that Genie suggested mm-hmm. to Yvonne in the morning was Jungle Cruise, which, by the way, is a probably a great suggestion, mm-hmm. depending on what you do for the rest of the day. Jungle Cruise gets busy fast. Mm-hmm. That made sense to me. Like That was actually a clever strategy. Mm-hmm. The problem was the next three things that it suggested for Yvonne were Swiss Family Treehouse, mm-hmm. Enchanted Tiki Room, and Country Bear Jamboree. Why would you do that in the morning? Like there's never going to be a line for any of those things throughout the day. The only thing I can think of is that it's crowd control. Mm-hmm. It's let's keep people out of Splash Mountain, out of Big Thunder, out of Seven Doors Mine Train, out of Space Mountain, because we're selling lightning lanes for those mm-hmm. and we don't want the lines to get too long. No, I get that. And from a geographic point of view, all three of those are within a relatively easy walk yeah. of, of Jungle Cruise. Yeah, it's clearly prioritizing um, locality of reference, but I when, or locality when 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 you do that, like where what is nearby mm-hmm. that has a low weight for me. Yeah, got it. But you and I talked about the fact that historically the magic number is ten attractions, right? If you go to a Disney theme park and you get on ten attractions, the guest feels like I got my money's worth. <laughs> <laughs> the thing we're the thing we're testing though now, Jim, apparently with Genie is do the ten attractions matter? <laughs> well, that's it exactly. If you walk out the door and yes, you got a, a ten attractions, but only two of the ones you really wanted to get on. What does that mean for guest satisfaction? And you and I were talking about this, right? So mm-hmm. let's say, you know, I had used, you know, Genie and I didn't know anything about Walt Disney World. And I went back home, right? Mm-hmm. And I was talking to a friend who who knew Disney, mm-hmm. right? And I said, oh, you know, I was at Hollywood Studios and I used the new Genie app. And and so my friend's questions would naturally be, mm-hmm. you know, what'd you think of Rise of the Resistance? It's the hot new ride, mm-hmm. right? In the park, it's, it's literally the highest rated attraction in any Disney or Universal mm-hmm. theme park in the United States, right? So if you know, if your friends know anything about Disney's theme parks, they're going to ask you about Rise of the Resistance. Mm-hmm. And when they ask you, you know, look, what did you think of Rise? Mm-hmm. Your answer has to be, well, I didn't, I didn't go on it, mm-hmm. right? It broke down or, and then it wasn't suggested after that. But then the next question would be like, well, okay, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway just opened. What'd you think of that? It's like, well, I was never routed to it, so I don't know. What, where does that conversation go after the fact? <laughs> Did you enjoy your tofu? You know, just... <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> it was... Yeah. I mean, again, you, you pointed this out. Mm-hmm. It's the initial release. They will they will certainly mm-hmm. tweak some of the prioritization that the algorithm uh, is using. But right now, um, I think, mm-hmm. it, you know, if I had to, uh, to describe this, Genie is basically two parts crowd control, two parts upselling, and maybe one part guest satisfaction. Right? Yeah. And that's, that's the only way to explain, mm-hmm. you know, these decisions. I really think that Genie needs to do two things. Mm-hmm. Number one, you have to be able to specify a start and a stop, t- a stop time mm-hmm. for the day. Like I was there for, for from 8.30 till 9, yeah. right? So 12 and a half hours. Mm-hmm. It was exhausting mm-hmm. to be in the park that long because I wasn't going from ride to ride where I was getting a little a, a little bit of adrenaline boost. Mm-hmm. Every time I was on, I sat around mm-hmm. a lot. I mean, granted, it was you know late October, but it was still like almost ninety degrees, Jim. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we at the end of the day, I think we both smelled pretty bad. Yeah, that, worse than normal. <laughs> yes, I was cheese with feet. <laughs> See, you smell Limburger? Yeah, Jim, are, you, are you? Are you? Is that a Stilton, Jim? What does there that smell are. like? Ah, camembert. Camembert. <laughs> the other thing I think Jeannie needs to do is if you ask a guest guest for eight attractions, mm-hmm. the itinerary has to include those eight attractions. Right? You can tell the guest, look, you know, this is going to take you. He's going to keep you in the park longer than you want to be here and let the guest figure that out, mm-hmm. right? But if a guest says, I want to do X, 
the itinerary has to include X. And right now it doesn't. Right? Now, granted, when you add those two things in, mm-hmm. right, that becomes a very hard scheduling problem. Again, I know I wrote my master's thesis on this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of the technical challenge there. The other thing is, is that I think guests left to their own devices will not pick mm-hmm. the seven lowest rated attractions in the park. Like I would not have picked Disney Junior on my itinerary list. I would not have picked Lightning McQueen. I would not have picked Aliens Whirling Saucers, right? I would not have picked Disney Movie Magic. So if Genie does does implement those two things, Disney needs to figure out another way to do crowd control. And, and frankly, I don't, I don't know that they can. So this might be just what happens with Genie, right? Yeah, and, but you and I also looking at the way it w- was laid out, and again, just stressing here what you were saying, two parts crowd control, two parts upselling, and uh, one part guest satisfaction. And given the amount of upselling that Genie involves, we've talked on previous shows about how Disney supposedly made back the half a billion dollars they spent on developing Magic Band's one $12 turkey leg at a time. Yeah. You got to wonder when you're doing something like that, when you're making somebody stay in the park for 12 and a half hours, and they have vast chunks of time whether they're waiting for the next two-hour window to get a ride, you know, yeah. are they going to make back the money they spent developing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely had like one or two more extra breaks where I, you know, I bought a $4 Coke. Mm-hmm. I probably spent at least $8 on sodas more than I would have had I been able to just get in and out of the park. Yeah. Right. I probably would have stayed for lunch. Mm-hmm. And not dinner, and maybe one other drink. So maybe maybe it was like twenty dollars or twenty five dollars that I that I, extra that I spent. I mean, Yvonne was Yvonne was in and out in six and a half hours, right? That's wow. that's basically one meal and a snack. Okay, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could be like it's a if you're there for that long, mm-hmm. right? Twelve and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Not only you're going to eat more, but at some point you're just going to be like, I'll you know I'll spend the money on the lightning lane or whatever just to get this done and go home. I get it. I get this is the new Walt Disney Company, and which has never met a, a revenue stream that it didn't like. But this is a little naked. This is a little obvious. Yeah. And I just wonder if the fact that it is as naked and obvious about what it's doing, it's going to wind up biting the mouse in the butt. I would love to see what the, you know, what the internal satisfaction uh, metrics are for the app. I haven't seen any surveys on it yet. And I don't think any of our listeners have sent them in, but we should mention antidotally again, you know, that we don't have any hard evidence of this, but as we were walking around the park, the four days we were recording these shows, we did see an awful lot of bright blue guest experience umbrellas. <laughs> we did. We saw and a number of people yeah. uh, at the, uh, at the guest experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we hadn't seen as many of those, mm-hmm since I think pre-pandemic, right? Nope. So these are the, these are blue umbrella stands mm-hmm. set up at various locations around the park with the words guest experience team mm-hmm. on it, where you can go and ask it questions typically about the app or about something that's going on in the park. Mm-hmm. And when we were in the Magic Kingdom, we saw Oof. lines, you know, four, six, eight people deep mm-hmm. waiting to talk to the guest experience team. And I don't think we've seen that in a long time. Well, we were walking out of Adventureland. And in fact, I think you made the comment that if we were chameleons and could move our eyes in both directions, we could have seen two blue guest experience umbrella teams set up within a minute of one another. And under each of these umbrellas were two sets of cast members, each with a tablet and each of them nodding and smiling and, and yeah. trying to resolve the problems of a number of guests. So I think I joked with you that when I was in Las Vegas the first time doing research for the unofficial guide, mm-hmm. there was a point where I was at um, the MGM Resort mm-hmm. Casino. 
where if I could unlink my eyes from looking in the same direction at the same time, mm-hmm. if I could point my eyes in different directions, mm-hmm. I could actually see two Starbucks <laughs> in, in this in the same casino at the same time. And I was like, Jim, this is exactly like that. Like well, if we could sort of like unlink our eyes and then point them in two different directions, we could see two guest experience teams yeah. working on this. Not only that, Jim, but remember we saw um, we saw uniformed cast members walking around in pairs looking for uh, guests who looked like they were upset. Mm-hmm. Yep. Apparently trying to, so not only were they being reactive and setting up these guest experience teams, but there was a, at least one group of proactive cast members mm-hmm. walking around. And this was early, right? This was like nine, 10 o'clock in the morning yeah. looking for, looking for guests who were straight up not having a good time as the kids say. Yeah. They were aware and they were out in the field trying to mitigate the situation. But again, just to be fair, early days of a brand new yeah. technology and anybody who's ever released you know, new tech knows about how buggy and, and things. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I say this and I'm, you know, stepping away from the window. So when the lightning comes in, destroy me, <laughs> I have a decent chance of living. Right. And, and, and let me say too, I, I know a ton of people on the genie team. And yep. This is no indication. This is nothing. I'm not saying anything bad about them. Right? Mm-hmm. They, I think I said this on Twitter, but like it, it takes a lot of work it does. to get something like this into production and the team mm-hmm. should be proud of it. Right. Mm-hmm. The prioritization mm-hmm. that I'm complaining about here, that comes from management. That doesn't come from the developers or the industrial engineers or the stats team or anything like that. Totally. Right? That's a management mm-hmm. decision. It's not, it's not a reflection on the developers. So, uh, so let, let's, let's, let's all keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. I agree. But anyway, oof, yep. rough day, rough yep. day. Yep. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Jim tells us how Disney's readjusting its spaced theme attractions and shows and that real-life space tourism has started. We'll be right back. And we're back. All right, Jim, before we start, I want to give a shout-out to one of our listeners, Laura Hall, who's a PhD candidate in aerospace engineering at UCF and just did an internship at SpaceX over the summer. So, Jim, we have an actual rocket scientist who listens to the show. I wonder if she's doing it as as part of some sort of court-ordered community service thing. I mean, why else... Why else would anyone that smart be listening to us? I I think the phrase that you use, Len, is palate cleanser. (laughs) It's got to be. It's got to be. Go from the really smart stuff to just a a dollop of idiocy before I get back to the smart. (laughs) That's it. I mean, she spends all day, like, you know, studying really, really smart things. And then at the end of the day, she's like, oh, my God, I just need something stupid to listen to. There you go. Oh, Len and Jim. New show. All right. Fantastic. All right, Jim. So space tourism. Mm-hmm. And the weird part of it is it's here. I mean, it's it's literally here. In fact, I, how many of our listeners saw the footage taken back on October 13th of William Shatner, his trip on- 90-year-old William Shatner. There we go. Head. You know, on the new Shepard, which is the, the rocket and capsule system that Jeff Bezos is using to power Blue Origin, his space tourism company. Not the longest flight, only 10 minutes and 17 seconds. But the suborbital capsule reached a height of over 347,000 feet. That's 66 miles above the Earth. And while the other three individuals on this flight were doing cartwheels uh, to celebrate the fact they'd have actually escaped the, the pull of the Earth's gravity, as you mentioned, the 90-year-old Captain Kirk was glued mm-hmm. to the window. He was staring down to the curvature of the Earth. And once the capsule returned to Earth, it landed two miles away from the, the launch pad in West Texas. William was waxing poetical about what he'd seen. Uh, he, he talked about how he was moved to tears by what he saw, that blue sky 
sky, this, this comforter blue that we have around us, and suddenly you shoot through it into the blackness of space, and that's when you realize the vulnerability of everything, that this barrier of air that keeps us all alive is thinner than your skin. But William went on to thank Jeff for the, the privilege of being able to see Earth from above, for giving him the most profound experience I can imagine. The view that Shatner experienced, that, that one that allows you to see the curvature of the Earth as you look down at the Western United States and a good chunk of Mexico, Disneyland visitors got to experience that something very similar from July of 55 through February of 66. Not the weightlessness part, but as guests entered the Tomorrowland attraction, which was located inside of the show building that now houses Disneyland Park's version of Buzz Lightyear Astro Blaster, they were able to look down at, well, not just the western United States and a chunk of Mexico, but the whole of the United States, where inside of, of three minutes, they got the 1950s version of space tourism. They, they got to experience the sun rising over the East Coast and then a glorious sunset on the West Coast and all of this with a, an inspirational or, orchestral score playing under it. Oh, Jim, let me pause there. Yeah. So this is an actual science question I have. Mm -hmm. Does satellite radio work on rocket ships? Ooh, okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Take a memo to SpaceX. Well, no, no, it's just, it's one of these things where we're suddenly in Stephen Wright country where he talks about you're in your car, which is traveling at the speed of light, and then you turn on your headlights. What happens? I don't know. Okay. All right. There's, there's a question for later on. All right. It's anyway. Okay. Smart so people, uh, please write in. Okay. You know. <laughs> Laura. There we go. Dear Laura. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what was this attraction, Jim? This was Space Station X. Uh, by the way, that name would change over its nearly five-year run at Disneyland Park, but we'll get to that name change in, in a moment. And, and the beauty part is Jeff Bezos doesn't really like to talk about what it costs to acquire a window seat aboard a Blue Origin flight. But given that Richard Branson is charging folks 250000 per flight on Virgin Galactic, well, the thinking among those who follow this still getting underway a business of space tourism. And in fact, we, we should ask Laura. She would probably know. Might know. She might, might know. know. But but if Bezos is charging his passengers that, you know, he must be charging as, at least as much as Branson is charging. Yeah. Whereas Disneyland visitors, if they wanted to look down at the Earth from 70 miles above, all they had to do was hand astronaut K7. This is the name of the cast member who was working in the ticket booth of this Tomorrowland attraction. K7? K7. Right. They actually had a little name tag. But you had to hand K7 one thin dime. That was the cost of an A ticket at Disneyland Park at that time, just 10 cents. And you could then gain entry to Space Station X. Inflation is rough, isn't it, Jim? <laughs> Ten, ten cents to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I think even the skyrocketing price of admission to Disneyland <laughs> lags it's, behind it's like, that. You know? It lags behind that exactly. Okay. Okay. <laughs> when the happiest place on earth opened in July of nineteen fifty-five, man hadn't been to space yet. Hell, we were still two years and two months out from the launch of Sputnik. So, true story. My uh, my parents had a. Funk and Wagnall's Encyclopedia mm -hmm. from 1959 mm -hmm. when I was growing up, mm -hmm. and under space flight, there was a line along the word along the the lines of "Man may someday go to the moon." Oh. <laughs> okay, I, I love that. But again, the Russians launched their first artificial Earth satellite in October of 57. U.S. government 
didn't launch their version, Explorer 1, until uh, four months later, January 31st, 1958. So how did the talented artists at Disney Studios know how to create an authentic-looking view of the United States from space without any real reference? That's actually a story that Dave Bossert shares in his terrific new book, Claude Coates, Walt Disney Imagineer, The Making of Disneyland from Toad Hall to the Haunted Mansion and Beyond. I'm ordering this book right now, if you hear me typing. Cool. Okay. Um, this actually hits store shelves in two weeks. November 16th, it's being published by Old Mill Press, 264-page hardcover, really worth reading. Oh, it's beautiful. It looks like one of those... Um Tashin books. Ooh, I, that looks good. Yeah, it's it's uh, Dave did a great job on this. Anyway, I'd give you some background on Claude. Claude starts at Disney Studios in 1935. He makes his mark at the Mouse House with some amazing background paintings that he does for Pinocchio. And from that point forward, Claude is Walt's go-to guy when he's looking to make a fantasy world seem real. So Claude does background paintings and color stylings for many of the animated features that Walt Disney Animation Studio produces during its first golden age. Chief among these being Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Cinderella, the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan. Now, please remember those last three titles, because they're going to play an important part in our story moving forward here. Okay. Uh, the Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, mm -hmm. Alice in Wonderland, and Peter Pan. Okay. Okay. So, as Dave tells this story and Claude Coates, Walt Disney's Imagineer, it's now early 55. And one morning, Claude is in Ken Anderson's office at the studio. They've just finished working on Disney's next animated feature, Lady and the Tramp, which will be released on June 22nd, less than a month from when Disneyland Park opens to the public. So Claude and Ken are chatting when Walt suddenly appears in the doorway of Anderson's office. He then says, geez, scenic studio can't finish Mr. Toad for opening day. You both know that film better than they do. You do it. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, at this moment, Coates and Anderson have just been drafted to go work on Disneyland. Their first assignment is to paint the entrance mural and then all of the dimensional flats inside of the attraction that get oh. guests would see as they drive through Mr. Toe's Wild Ride. And, and this is a big assignment, Len, that some of the flats inside of Mr. Toad are 18 feet high. Oh, yeah. Also, this is the very first time that Claude Coates has ever worked with blacklight paint. But Walt needs all this work done by July 17th. So Claude rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work inside of the special effects building in the uh, Disney lot. This is actually where they painted the flats. And once they were finished, threw them on a truck and drew them out to Anaheim. I'm sure, Jim, that in 1955, the Disney company was completely complying with future OSHA requirements <laughs> around ventilation and safety and, you know, you know, non flammable paints and <laughs> oh, Len, I volatile <laughs> compounds and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, entirely, right? Claude Coates definitely did not go into there uh, in a pair of shorts with no shirt and start slapping paint around uh, fiberboard, right? You're looking at the pictures in the book, aren't you? <laughs> Shouldn't does anyone see a fire extinguisher anywhere in this warehouse? Yeah, it's fine, it's yeah. fine, it's fine. <laughs> and as they say, Len, no good deed goes unpunished. So when right. when Claude and Ken do such a good job on, on Mr. Toad's wild ride, well, Walt immediately decides to give them Fantasyland's other two dark rides to work on: a Snow White Scary Adventure and Peter Pan Flight. Now, Claude, because he's been working for hours and hours and hours with black white paint, Walt notices how adept. He's getting at it. And so this is when he turned to Coates and says, hey, Peter Ellenshaw needs help with Space Station X-1. When you finish here, can you go and help Peter get a handle on the Blacklight portion of the Tomorrowland attraction? <laughs> 
<laughs> you mentioned black paint to Walt, and he's like, clouds are a black, paint, uh, black light guy. All right, so this is how Space Station X-1 worked. All right, so you enter this Tomorrowland attraction through a tunnel. You then step onto a slowly rotating platform with windows that then allowed the guests to look out at this huge painted canvas, which is sloped and curved. I, I picture when, as if you were standing inside of a giant bowl. But your entire field of vision is filled with the United States below you and the twinkling stars above. Oh, okay. So you're inside the bowl. The bowl's not upside down. There we go. You're inside the bowl. You, okay, got it, got it. Okay. Ooh, that's clever. When I say twinkling stars, what I mean is that they literally walked around the canvas and poked holes in it. And then behind the canvas, they set up these various wide light bulbs at differing lengths. So you that's how you got the star effect. One of the things that uh, that I noticed when I was walking through Walt Disney Presents at the mm-hmm. studios, because I had a lot of time mm-hmm. Saturday gym, is this. The effect only has to work for like five minutes. That's exactly. That's- <laughs> All right. Okay, go ahead. All right. So anyway, Peter Ellen Shaw, who Claude is c- collaborating on Space Station X, he is Disney's master mate, uh, matte painter. In fact, he's the guy who just helped the studio take home that year's Oscar for best visual effects for the work that he did on 20,000 Leagues. He's already painted this huge image of the United States from space where you could see the Rockies and the Grand Canyon and the entire eastern seaboard. So where did Peter get the reference that he used when he began working on the painting? This is 55? 55. So there are no satellites yet? No, no, no. Would you believe that there were a few images that have been captured from a V2 rocket? (laughs) The very same rocket that the, the Germans used to bomb London oh, during World Oh, because we, we captured a bunch of V2s, brought them over to we like did. Mexico and started launching them, right? That's how yeah. the U.S. space program began, right? Yeah. Wonder Von Braun, who definitely, Jim, was not a Nazi. Definitely. Absolutely and, uh, not a Nazi. Did you, yeah, did you ever hear the Tom Lehrer song about Wonder Von Braun? It has this one wonderful line in it. That, Once the rockets come up, who cares where they come down? It's not my department, <laughs> says Werner Von Braun. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm joking. I don't. I don't think Verna Von Braun actually had Nazi sympathies. I, I think he was coerced. But okay. Anyway. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so we get a bunch of German V2s. Yeah. Post-war German V2s. We shoot them up in New Mexico. We get fantastic panoramas of the United States. And, and the, <laughs> those pictures taken during the, the suborbital flight. Very first images of what Earth actually looked for from space. So where does Claude come in? Well, again, Ellen Shaw had painted a daytime version of the United States. And what Walt wanted Claude to do was apply blacklight paint to Peter's canvas in such a way that as the space station platform slowly rotated, it would give guests a view of, of the United States as the sunset and the lights came up in major metropolitan areas around the country. So oh. here's Claude gingerly stepping out onto Ellen Shaw's finished canvas and he begins a applying black light to New York City and, and Chicago and L.A. And he also dabs paint in the upper Pacific Northwest to, to create the impression that this is huge forest fire going on. And that he even creates a smoke trail that, in fact, You've been following what's been going on with all of the horrible fires on the West Coast and how yeah. it's been traveling to the East Coast. I mean, here's Claude doing this back in 55. Yeah, 60-some 60, 60 years ago, he's doing the same thing. Yeah. That's actually pretty clever. I, I guess in the 50s, we had some idea that the jet stream existed. Mm-hmm. So you would know how particulate matter from forest fires in the West 
traveled east. But still, mm-hmm. I mean, to be to think of that mm-hmm. in the fifties, yeah. pretty pretty clever. Yeah. So end end result, this collaboration between Claude Coates and Peter Ellichow was dazzling, especially for folks in the mid nineteen fifties who had yet to see what the Earth really looked like from space, and were just thrilled with this approximation. But Sputnik takes the skies in October 57, followed by Explorer 1, the U.S. version, in January of the following year, and interest in space exploration skyrockets among the American public. And Walt wanted to capitalize on all the talk at that time about satellites in the space race. Actually changes the name of this Tomorrowland attraction. It goes from being Space Station X to Satellite View of the United States. One of the things they did when they changed the name is they also updated the attraction. And this is because when Explorer 1 actually did have some instruments on board that helped scientists get a better understanding what Earth looked like from space, whereas Sputnik had some a teeny bit of tech on board you know, that would allow it to send out a, a radio signal till its orbit began to decay and finally crashed Earth yeah. in October 57. Yeah, it was basically just a ping, right? Yeah, Sp- yeah. Sputnik was just a ping, yeah. There we go. So when the images come back from Explorer 1, Walt actually sends Peter and Claude back to Disneyland and has them out walking on this canvas after the guests have gone home at night, making the necessary changes. It's like, now Florida doesn't look like that. Go fix it. <laughs> we can see Kansas City from space. There, Put it here. There we yeah. go. There we go. <laughs> That's fantastic to do that because I mean, I guess Walt knew that some people would know, but but the idea that he wants to make it as accurate as possible. Mm. I mean, I think we all agree Walt loved the space program. Oh God, yeah. Because he pro- he produces that um, mm. Man in Space documentary that becomes super influential, right? There are some amazing pictures of Walt and Claude along with Renner Brown at the Johnson Space Center. And some of these were taken by NASA, and, and yep. they're some of the few non-Disney copyrighted images of Walt. Yeah. Publicly, public domain images of Walt that you can use. I, yeah. I have come out of there, and it's so funny because Claude is a big guy. Claude is like 6'6", six, six, you know, the, the, a very tall guy. And Walt kept, you know, kind of like, well, you could never fit in a space capsule. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's actually a great story about, at one point that they had built a stagecoach for Disneyland, and they were taking pictures of people in front of the stagecoach, and Claude was there, and Walt actually told Claude to step out of the photo because he was screwing up the scale. It's like... <laughs> You get to say, no, you're too tall. You know, it looks, it, you're making it look small. Get out of the picture. That reminds me of the uh, the story where Frank Lloyd Wright mm-hmm. apparently designed buildings based on his height, which I guess was like 5'8". So all of his homes were designed for people of his size. Mm-hmm. And he, he apparently had an assistant who, like like Claude, was like 6'6 six, six or 6'7", six, mm-hmm. where the guy's hat would actually touch the ceiling mm-hmm. when he went into the house. And so, so Frank Lloyd Wright was like, you know, Steve, get out of the picture. You're ruining the scale. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> But anyway, getting back to Walt sending them to, to Disneyland to make the changes to reflect what Explorer 1 had told us, that was Walt. He liked Disneyland to be dynamic. He could be constantly yeah. changing, so guests could always have something new to see, which which is why February of 1960, Tomorrowland Satellite View of the United States closes to make way for a brand new exhibit that then celebrates the art of Disney animation. 
One last little tidbit to share about this Tomorrowland attraction, and that's the description of Space Station X-1's satellite view to the United States, which flanked the ticket book that poor astronaut K-7 sat in. And it, this is how it read, Len. It said, View America by day and night, from the Atlantic to the Pacific seaboards, from the Gulf to the Northern Lights aboard Disneyland X-1, as you ride the simulated orbit of a satellite in flight on the fringe of the cosmic wind. And I'm sorry, that last description on the fringe of the cosmic wind was almost po as poetical as what William Shatner said after he stepped out onto solid Earth after climbing out of the capsule of the New Shepard. Yeah, that's nice. On the fringe of the cosmic wind. Yeah, that's nice. Since then, obviously, we've had a number of attractions that have sent guests into space, whether it was Space Mountain or, for that matter, Mission Space. And mm -hmm. what's been kind of interesting is the conversations that Disney, the Imaginators, are having now where the effect of, okay, we are really sending people into space. And what are we going to do about this? And in fact, I don't know if you saw the trailer that just broke yesterday for Lightyear. The new Pixar film that's coming out next summer that's sort of the... Is it the origin story of Buzz Lightyear? It is the, the origin story. You know, how the, the really for real test pilot became the space ranger that we know and love. And then that's the figure that the toy got based on. Oh, that's amazing. Also, the um, speaking of the you know going into space thing, remember that when Disney finally put out the details on the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. Mm -hmm. One of the legal disclaimers that they had to include was, this is not an actual trip into space. Mm -hmm. And that's because of all of this, right? Yeah. I mean, they, they, the lawyers had to say, look, you're not going to be you know, going into orbit mm -hmm. or anything. No. That, yeah, amazing. Amazing how things have changed. Yeah, and, and well, uh, speaking of which, though, I, I guess we, we should mention that a, a brand new experience opened at Epcot uh, back on September 20th, uh, which is very mm -hmm. reminiscent of, of Space Station X-1 and Satellite View of the United States, and that's Space 220. That's a restaurant that allows you to look out over the curvature of the Earth, now officially known as William Shatner's favorite view. <laughs> Can we share what your friend told us th this past weekend about what table seating area you you really should be requesting if you want the very best view when you're done? Oh, yeah, yeah. So a, a friend of mine that we were talking to mm -hmm. um, said uh, had very specific seating advice on where to be located or to ask to sit in Space 220 for the best possible views. Go ahead. And it's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? Like, you, know, you would think you want to be as close to the windows as possible. And, and, right. and she was like, no, 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 no. You want to be in the second level of the restaurant. And even... Further counterintuitive, you don't want to be in the middle. You want to be to either side. Because just like on the Disney cruise ships, mm -hmm. where in the bar, uh, in the bar skyline, mm -hmm. uh, on the edges of the screen, you see fun little vignettes like Mickey Mouse walking into an apartment in Paris. Mm -hmm. um, the Imagineers in Space 220 have done these little gags. Mm -hmm. So you'll see on the side screens, things like astronauts fighting with lightsabers, mm -hmm or people walking their dogs in spacesuits, like little little gags mm -hmm. that you wouldn't see if you were sitting, for example, in the middle screen right next to it in, in, in Space Station 20. So you, um, we were told you want to be near one of the edges where you can see these funny little effects happening. Okay, and, and there are also safety concerns. If you're sitting dead center by the window, when the giant universal logo starts to fly over Earth, you could get hit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, you just you want to be a little further back, and you want to be to the side. So just just saying. I think, I think you have to you have to think you have to time the Earth orbit so you see it. So I think you want to go in the afternoon, ah. not the morning, to see that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> 
That was a great show. We really need to do a show on uh, on the Werner, Werner von Braun. Oh, uh, uh, no, absolutely. Collab. We've got a Ward Kimball bio coming out soon that I hope finally gets the definitive thing about Warner supposedly recruiting Ward and Disney to create the film that was going to, you know, the film they were going to put on television when the emissary from another planet landed at the UN, you know, to the effect of, oh, by the way, yes, there are aliens and don't panic. It's just a thing. And I'm kindly Walt yeah. Disney and you know, I'm breaking the news to you gently. Oh, I, I've never heard the story. Oh really? yeah. Really? No, no. All right, let's do it. Let's do a show and let's incorporate that in. And let's, Go. um, let's also do a show on Claude Coates, the Claude Coates book when it comes out November 16th. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. All right, folks, that's going to do it for the Disney dish show today. Please head on over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com, where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on iTunes, including live shows Jim and I have just recorded in all four Walt Disney World theme parks. On next week's show, the history of Disney's Big Thunder attraction with special guest Drew Taylor. You can find more of Jim at JimHillMedia.com and more of me, Len, at TouringPlans.com. We're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams who's playing the role of Mitchell in the final performance of the Ron Clark and Sam Bobrick comedy Murder at the Howard Johnson's no! this Thursday. Yeah, this Thursday, November 4th at the Newport Playhouse and Cabaret Restaurant in beautiful downtown Newport, Rhode Island. I actually saw the out-of-town tryout in Boston of this this show of Murder at the Howard Johnson's with Sally Struthers, Rita Moreno, and damn it, I'm blanking the name of the comic actor. But, but seriously, the the actual really for real play when it launched in Boston, and it was terrible. Um, so <laughs> I, I, read the, I read the New York Times reviews. <laughs> Not an untalented cast, but, but, but terrible. Just, just. Uh. You wonder why it takes five hours to prep for one of these shows, and three hours of it is is me figuring out what Aaron's doing every week. There we go. So. <laughs> anyway, okay. while Aaron's doing that, please go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.